Double K Super Show, a symbol of podcasting excellence since last October. Welcome to the Double K Super Show, our first show of 2021. Mark, how did we survive 2020? Uh, we haven't done it yet, but things are oh, looking. That's up. true. You're right. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Well, but for all intents and purposes, this will be our first show of 2021. So, I'm Chris Karam, aka Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konsarowski, and we're here to talk about the Bay City Rollers. And appropriately enough, it was 45 years ago this week, because the show will be dropping on January 1st, that the first number one single of 1976 was Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers. And it was the beginning of a tumultuous and, no pun intended, roller coaster ride up and down the charts. This group had uh, had quite a history even before it, they hit the U.S. It was a group started in the late 60s by drummer Derek Longmuir and his brother Alan Longmuir, who played uh, bass, guitar, and keyboards. They were originally known as the Saxons, and they they the first group featured them as well as a singer named Gordon quote Nobby Clark, and I think Nobby is a British slang term for male genitalia if i'm not mistaken but anyway along with some other guys they formed a group and eventually decided they wanted american sounding names so what they did and this is the story they tell they took a map of america and they just kind of randomly plunged a pin into it and it landed near bay city michigan and they and the model for the name was mitch rider and the detroit wheels so they decided it was landed near a place called Bay City, so they decided they would call themselves the Bay City Rollers. Isn't that something, Mark? That's uh, pretty exciting, considering probably none of them had ever been outside of Scotland. No, they hadn't, but they definitely had their sights on a pop career. And, uh, in 1971, they had their very first single in the U.K. called uh, Keep On Dancing. It was a cover of an old 60s song. The song went to number one in the U.K., and the group released several singles over the next couple of years, but none of them met with the nowhere near the level of success of, of uh, Keep On Dancing. And the group just kept going, but weren't, didn't seem to be going anywhere. But by 1974, uh, the group arrived at the lineup that would be known by most fans as the classic lineup. And that's, of course, the Longmuir Brothers, uh, Eric Faulkner on lead guitar, Leslie McEwen on lead vocals, and Stuart Woody Wood on guitar and later bass and even saxophone. And this group would record the group's actual first full-length album because even though they'd been together for a long time and had put out all these singles, they'd never released a full album. So they put out an album called Rollman in the U.K., and this spawned a, a trend in the U.K. that was called Roller Mania original and they became so huge that the 1975 was described as the rollers year it was just incredible mark it was they said it was almost like the second coming of the beatles i can kind of see that because the time was right for a phenomenon of that sort and the beatles themselves were had long been consigned to history by that point uh you'd had the glam thing which was kind of petering out so the base city rollers come in as sort of like the very tail end of glam, but you know they're fresh new faces because Mark Bolin and David Bowie at that point were probably you know passe. Uh, 
So, yeah, the time was definitely right for them. Right. And they were a boy band even before that term was coined. And they were an actual band. They weren't just a bunch of guys who put on jumpsuits and danced and lip sync. They actually played their instruments. They even wrote quite a few of their own songs. It was disclosed that some of their early singles and parts of their, I think, their first album were done by session musicians. But this was not because the Rollers, you know, didn't want to do it. They were just kind of forced into it by the record company. But what happened is in England, it got out that session musicians played on the first album. So Bell Records basically said, okay, from now on, you guys do your own, you play on your own records, which I think put off some producers because the producers brought in the session guys just because they wanted to get it done, you know, lickety quick or lickety split or whatever. So, but it served its purpose, but their second album in the UK once upon a star came out and like i said it was it was roller mania it was like the beatles that you know the screaming girls girls were having heart attacks passing out trampling over each other it was just great times but meanwhile in 1975 while this hat was playing out in the uk bell records uh, in the u.s was had been spun, spun off from uh, columbia pictures or something like that and a, a man by the name of Clive Davis took over the company. You know who Clive Davis is, of course, right, Mark? Yeah, Clive Davis was a long, long, long time impresario at Columbia Records. He signed all kinds of people, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, everyone from uh, Simon and Garfunkel to them to just about everybody. And at this point, he was in charge of Arista Records, which Bell Records was, um, what's the word, amalgamated into. But he was he is also the man who signed the Outlaws, the famous Southern rock band. Right. Yeah. He actually renamed Bell Records Arista Records because it was I believe it was after some honor society at the, the public school he went to. Clive Davis basically had to look at the roster of Bell Records and decide who was going to stay, and who was going to go. Clive Davis only ended up keeping two artists from the Bell Records roster in the U.S., or for the U.S., uh, a singer-songwriter by the name of Barry Manilow and, of course, uh, the Bay City Rollers. Mm. He decided to take a gamble on them in the U.S. because they hadn't had released anything in the U.S. at that point. So in late 1975, uh, Arista Records released their U.S. debut, which was self-titled, you know, Bay City Rollers, which was really a compilation of songs from their first two U.K. albums, Roland and Once Upon a Star, um, with the addition of their then current UK single "Give a Little Love," so it's it really was a, just a kind of ragtag collection of songs. But you know, of course, the backdrop of the record was a, a plaid, you know, shawl or something. It was plaid fabric, and then they had a picture of the rollers kind of pasted in there. And Clive Davis heard "Saturday Night" and decided, okay, this is going to be their first song. And they got their very first US appearance on a show called. Saturday Night Live. But Mark, it wasn't the Saturday Night Live that most of our listeners will think it is. And do you know why? Oh, that's right. Because there was there was a separate Saturday Night Live that was um, who who was who was the host of it? Howard Cosell. It was called Saturday that's Night Live right. with Howard Cosell. That's right. It was his attempt to branch out into like the talk show circuit, a la Dick Cavett and whatnot. I know. I was just gonna say it was more. I think it was more of like a general variety show format because they had some uh, repertory players. In fact, 
they had Christopher Guest and Bill Murray. Uh, they were and they were part of a group called the Primetime Players. That's interesting. That is true. I haven't. I've never actually seen any of these episodes, but I have heard about this over the years. But it, it's interesting that yeah. Well, Saturday right. Night Live during its first season was known as NBC Saturday Night because right. the name was already taken by Howard Cosell. That much I remember. Yeah, they wanted to call NBC. Lorne Michaels wanted to call his show Saturday Night Live, but of course uh, Cosell and ABC beat them to it. But the irony was that you know Cosell's show was canceled after one season, and you know NBC's is still running and. I guess the following year, uh, Lorne Michaels called up the head of NBC, ABC and said, can we use the name? They were like, yeah, you go ahead. And uh, the rest is history. But, yeah, I think the first appearance was via satellite, I think, they did, which was like a big deal back then. Those are relatively new. And, I, and I, it was a live show. So they, you know, they were probably going on at like three in the morning or something like that over there. But and I and I there are clips of it on, on YouTube where I think they were like encased in this like shipping crate or a mock shipping crate and then it the shipping crate just kind of fell apart and the basic rollers jumped out of it and lip synced saturday night and i i think they made it i think they may have made an actual appearance on the show like a week later or two weeks later when they first came to this country but by january 1976 it was the number one song on the billboard charts you know which is a hell of a way for your first U.S. single to do, and what's iron, what's ironic about that is that in the U.K. it wasn't a hit. It was, in fact, there are two versions of the song. The original single release in the U.K. had their first, their original singer Nobby Clark, and by the time it was re-released on their first U.K. album, Roland, uh, Les McEwen had recut the lead vocal because he was, you know, the singer in the group. But it certainly got them off to a big start in this move in this country, and then. The teen magazines, like 16 in particular, just pounced on them. They were like, you know, fresh meat. And if you picked up a 16 magazine between 1976 and 1978, they were pretty much on every cover. Yeah, that was during a time when they were competing with the Bee Gees, uh, Peter Frampton, the cast, of, the cast of Happy Days, as far as like Teen Idols, Sean Cassidy, all those people. That was the classic age of the the uh, the sixteen magazine centerfold pinup era, and they slotted the, the Bay City Rollers definitely slotted uh, perfectly into that. They well, were perfect for the they were perfect for the kids who were put off by Kiss. Yeah, the Bay City Rollers were kind of pro, uh, projected as this kind of wholesome, clean cut group. They you know literally at their press conferences they would have pictures of milk. If you read 16 Magazine, they would all say, oh, we like puppy dogs and, you know, the girl next door. But, of course, they never had time for girlfriends because they were touring and they were too young to be tied down. And Les was sort of portrayed as kind of like the bad boy of the group. And he kind of was in a way. I mean, obviously, behind the scenes, they were not as squeaky clean as the teen magazines of that time would lead you to believe they were like any other group in terms of drugs and alcohol. In fact, um, in 1976, Eric Faulkner, the group's lead guitar player, uh, overdosed on uh, sleeping pills or speed. He was taking a lot of speed to kind of keep going. And, you know, of course, these guys are touring the world, so their rhythms are off. And he just overdosed. And the band's manager, uh, who was this 
combination Svengali and this despicable pig, uh, his name is Tam Payton. He called when this happened, rather than call the, the legend goes that instead of calling the ambulance first, he called the tabloids first and said, you know, roll or overdosing. He was trying to get them. It, it didn't make sense because he was on the one hand trying to make them look wholesome, but I guess part of him wanted to get what he called some street credibility. And it was kind of the sign that maybe things behind the scenes weren't as rosy as we were led to believe by 16 Magazine. Yeah, the era of the great touring band with all the pitfalls, you know, the drugs, the groupies, the the hellish touring schedule, um, the fact that all the money gets collected after the show and yet that doesn't get reflected in your pay packet, that kind of thing. That That is your classic uh, 70s touring uh schedule oh the money thing you we'll get into this later after the like the heyday but oh do you want to talk about not getting your money's worth and not getting what you were supposed to get but yeah there, there were definite signs even at this point in time when the rollers were just starting to explode in the u.s they released their second album in early 1976 called rock and roll love letter and it shared the same cover photo as their third uk album wouldn't you like it but it was kind of an, uh, an another like compilation of songs from the second album, Once Upon a Star, and the third album, Wouldn't You Like It? Plus, it also had a newly recorded song for it called Rock and Roll Love Letter, and it had a song called Money Honey, which was a song by Eric Faulkner and Stuart uh, Wood, Woody, that was about kind of money grubbers and stuff, and it's actually a pretty hard-rocking song. You know, the, it's no secret to roller fans that Eric Faulkner really idolized people like David Bowie and Mark Bolan. And if he could have had his way, the Rollers probably would have been a bit harder edged. In fact, on their It's a Game album, they do a cover version of Rebel Rebel with – and Eric Faulkner actually sings the lead vocal. Don't worry. They, they're no threat to Bowie. And Eric Faulkner really wasn't a lead singer per se. He was a good, very good guitar player. He could even play mandolin. He was kind of a whiz on a stringed instrument, but – like I said, you know, the group was exploding in the U.S. They were going all over the place and causing havoc. But the toll of the touring lifestyle was starting to take its toll. And in the spring of 1976, Alan Longmuir, who at that point was 28 years old and he was the old man of the group. I think he was like a few years older than most of the guys in the group. So 28, I guess, was old to be a teen idol. And he ended up leaving the group. Now, did he leave or was he pushed? I think, you know, at the time it was said he wanted to leave and just spend time on his farm and, you know, kind of retire from the business. So, but I think he was pushed out by the band's manager and they brought in Ian Mitchell. Broke with tradition because he wasn't a Scot. He was Irish. He was 18 years old from Ireland and... Of course, they put him in the trademark roller gear with the uh, the plaid outfits and everything. He was stayed long enough to record an album with them, and that was about it. He was there for about six months, and then, boom, he was out the door. You know, he stayed he stayed long enough to record the dedication album, to even record the lead vocal on the title track. But by the time the record came out, he was gone. It's kind of like the Mick Taylor of the group, I guess you could say. <clears throat> right. But in a much more condensed lifespan. Yeah, six months. I guess it, it sort of almost sounds like a bit like Menudo, you know, where you reach a certain age, like 21 or 22. 
you're almost too old to be in in a, in a teen-oriented sort of group. So at that point, yeah, they, they do tend to start bringing in the fresh blood. Well, I think Alan Wangmuir was, was just getting disillusioned with the business. You know, he said in an interview, like, he was just, he you know, he was spending a lot more time at the pub drinking whiskey. And, you know, he was he'd even contemplated suicide. And this was not something that jived with the rollers. Like I said, for the most part, they had a very clean image. I mean, I think the most scandalous thing that came out during that time was that the, Le- the lead singer, Les McEwen, smoked cigarettes. Cigarettes. Okay. Ian Mitchell was gone by, like, October, November of 76, and they brought in another kid, uh, Pat McGlynn, who probably was about the same age as Ian Mitchell. If he, you know, if he, he wasn't, he couldn't have been much older. Let's put it that way. And they brought him in, and, you know, he was lip-syncing along to, you know, songs that Ian did. In fact, one interesting thing, Ian Mitchell did the lead vocal for the title track on the Dedication album, which was released in the fall of 76. And they wanted to release it, I think, as the second single. But, of course, he was gone by that point. So they actually went back in. Les McEwen went back in and recut the lead vocal. Now, what's interesting is that I bought the album in 1978. And it says on the outside, you know, the liner notes on the – they have track-by-track track notes, and it says lead vocal Ian Mitchell, but it sounds like Les. And it turns out they just didn't change the copy on the back cover of those albums. They 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 re, you know, released it with the re-recorded vocal. But so, you know, if you have like a first pressing, a U.S. pressing of dedication, you have it. But I didn't hear Ian's version until years and years later. And it's funny because – there's a sort of spoken part at the beginning of the song, and when Ian Mitchell does it, he sounds like he's trying to rush his way through it. He sounds like a little nervous, like he's not really comfortable with what he's doing. But they recut it, and the song did reasonably well. But again, uh, Pat McGlynn stayed – again, he stayed long enough to do an album with them, but by the time the record came out, he was no longer in the group, and he wasn't even pictured on the album art. And supposedly he recorded his tracks, but they just sort of – took his guitar parts off. And this album, of course, was It's a Game, which came out in the spring of 1977. So for a while, in 77 to 78, the group was actually a four-piece. And they had their last top 10 U.S. single in the summer of 77 with You Made Me Believe in Magic. I think it went to number nine, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, the group just kept, quote-unquote, and no, actually, no, pun intended, rolling along. And, like, they were the stars of 16 magazine in fact that's how i became aware of them because i was by 16 magazine to read about kiss and they were in there and i ended up getting it's a game and i liked it and i got the other records and i enjoyed them and i still do to this day i mean this is not this show is not me being ironic or trying to sort of proclaim my love for a guilty pleasure i do like the rollers and I think they really, I think their music holds up. You know, it's it's of its time. It's the 70s. So, you know, make of that what you will. Well, tell me this. How would you describe the sound of the Bay City Rollers for people who may be listening to this episode but have never actually heard the group? I would define them as 70s pop rock. And that encompasses a lot of things. There's ballads. There's, of course, power ballads. They weren't called power ballads back then. There's there's disco tinged numbers that, you know that have danceable beats although you know one of their songs in fact it's called uh, Don't Stop the Music in which the title phrase is repeated about 700 times there's even a disco mix for that 
which uh, I don't think I've, I don't know if it's ever been on CD, but I have like an MP3 of it. But I would say pop rock. They they were you know they weren't heavy metal, they weren't hard rock, but they did have some songs that rocked out. Like I said, Eric was a fan of Bowie and Slade and and Mark Bolan. So whenever the opportunity came out or revealed itself, he could he could really wail. And he was a talent you know talented guitar player. They're you know they're good musicians. I mean, were they the Beatles? No. Were they virtuosos? No. They didn't need to be, but they could at least go on TV and play live if they needed to. Although most of their TV appearances that you'll see on YouTube are lip syncs. But I would say 70s pop rock with all that entails. Somewhere between, like, the Raspberries, perhaps, and, you know, some of the, as you say, the British group, Sweet or Slade, but probably not as raucous as any of those. A a little bit calmer, but at the same time, you know, not as teeny bop as they could have been. We're not talking about Donnie Marie here. No, no, definitely not. You know, there were some nods to disco. There were some nods to, you know, pop. And in fact, they did a Raspberry song. I think, let's pretend it was on. I know they did an Eric Carmen song in the dedication album. I'm not sure if it was Raspberries or not. But, you know, you were right. Yeah, they were definitely influenced by the, you know, the Raspberries. I mean, I think they were one of those groups that were kind of like a sort of influential group, but maybe not as well known as some other 70s groups. They seem to be held in very high regard by a lot of people. In fact, this is a side note. I'll give you a quick irony of history. Have you ever heard the group Big Star? Yes. Well, you know how Big Star is held up as, you know, the potential saviors of American pop in the 70s that could have been the biggest band ever, ever, etc. And, you know, they're, they're held up by journalists and by music fans who sometimes can be a little snobby for their own good. You have to hear about this incredible, fantastic band. In some ways, they're kind of like the Velvet Underground of the 70s, the band that everybody should have heard, but nobody did. If you listen to the actual Big Star discography, a lot of it kind of sounds like Bay City Rollers. I I made that connection very recently. I do have a CD of theirs that's Got two of their records. It's one of those two-on-one things. I'll have to listen to that again. I haven't listened to it in quite a while. I think I've only listened to it once or twice. But, you know, you could be right. Maybe, and maybe on a future show we can talk about that. But, you know, getting back to the Rollers, at this point the Rollers were like the darlings of the uh, daytime afternoon talk show circuit. Mark, you remember shows like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. Kind of sure. If you go on the YouTubes, you can see... Tons of clips of them appearing on these shows. They would just go on and constantly plug their albums. In fact, this led to an amusing story that some teenage girl wrote into 16 Magazine saying, I think the Rollers are faking it. When they were on, I don't know, you know, Mike Douglas or something recently, the drums started playing and sat down behind the kit. And they kind of explained, look, most of these shows are not equipped for live performances. So, yes, the Rollers do you know, lip sync on some time to time. Oh my God. It was, but it was like a scandal because, you know, you got to remember this was post monkeys era where, you know, if you didn't play your own instruments, you were persona non grata. I mean, even the, even some of the teenage girls could be purists in that way. You know, as funny as that sounds. Well, you know, 
<clears throat> in those days, when some, when an older pop performer, somebody like you know uh, Tony Bennett or Jerry Vale or whoever showed up on the show, they would play with the in-house Mike Douglas band because that was a, a setup that was equipped to play pop music of their generation. That couldn't be had with, with a group of the younger generation that were playing rock and roll music because you can't jam with the Burf Griffin band on, you know, Saturday night. So, yes, their performances had to be lip sync. That was just the way it was. The acoustics of the hall were not set up for rock and roll performances. Right. And, I mean, uh, although there is, like, when they appeared on the uh, Midnight Special, you remember that one, Mark? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely remember the Midnight Special and Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah, I know when they appeared on Midnight Special, they were live. Because I've seen clips, and you can tell they're playing live. Now, supposedly, according to this a book I've read, this very lurid biography of them from the UK, supposedly Les McEwen was high on cocaine when... You know he did it, and I'm and I'm shocked that any singer from the 1970s would have gone on stage in such a state and and performed that way. I mean, can you believe that, Mark? No, no, they all smoke pot. <laughs> they probably did that too. But yeah, I mean, the Rollers. You know, the funny thing is, for as big as they were, their success was relatively short-lived. I would say. They were big in the UK in 1975. Then they came over here, and they were probably big for about, I'd say, about two years from 76 to 78. And, of course, there, like I said, there was a lot of tumult behind the scenes, some of it caused by management, some of it caused by band members wanting to, you know, spread their wings or stretch their, you know, wings a bit. But, like I said, by 1977 or late 1977, it was basically down to Les McEwen, Eric Faulkner, Woody, and uh, Derek Longmuir, and you know they kept going as a as a quartet. In fact, a friend of mine from sixth grade, who I you know he's on Facebook now, and I saw him last year at our high school reunion. He's actually responsible for providing me with my very first bootleg. He got uh, tickets to see the Bay City Rollers at the Boston Garden in December of 1977, and just like rerun from What's Happening. He snuck a tape recorder in there and, and recorded the entire show. And I remember he made a copy of that tape. We were in sixth grade at the time, uh, 77 to 78. Hmm. And I just remember at the time, at the, I listened to it on this little cassette recorder that I had. It was probably one of those Radio Shack things. And I remember at the time thinking all I could really hear was audience. And it was all, of course, screaming girls. And I think he got most of the show on there. Anyway, last year... Uh, as it turns out, he, he still had the tape. He had it digitized. He sent me a CDR of it, and it, it's not half bad. It's It sounds pretty good, and what's cool about it is that at one point towards the end of the show, somebody from Arista Records comes out and presents him with a gold record award for It's a Game. Oh, that's pretty cool to get that on tape. Yeah, I, and I think, it was a, I think it was one of these like shows where they had multiple acts. Like I think... It might have been like Leif Garrett and Sean Cassidy or maybe even Andy Gibb. So they all kind of came on. I think the Rollers were like the like the headline actor, the, the, the you know, the biggest one at the time, because I think those other acts were relatively new at that point, although the Rollers really weren't that old either. But, yeah, it's kind of a neat souvenir to have because it, it was done 
in you know in Boston, and it was you know from a friend of mine. I mean, I'd never heard a bootleg recording prior to that, and it's just funny that I got my first bootleg recording on a cheap little cassette on you know in sixth grade. I don't have that cassette anymore, but fortunately, my friend uh, Ron Ronnie held on to it, and you know he sent it to me last year. So no, thanks, Ron. You know, it's a kind of nice little souvenir to have from a much more innocent time when I was just discovering music and the all the wonders of you know teen pop or you know pop rock or whatever. So yeah, that was your entry into the uh, the world famous and infamous Bay City Rollers tape trading scene. <laughs> It's a million of them. You know, the funny thing about that, they're a, bo- a group that does not have a lot of bootlegs out there. I've looked, and, I and you know, there's really not much to be found uh, out there. They did put out in 2000 or 2001 a p- kind of posthumous Live in Japan album from the 1977 shows. Um, it, it was kind of released on some back alley record label and got really spotty distribution and kind of torpedoed their attempt at a comeback by the classic group. But it's a kind of interesting thing because you hear that Japanese applause, which is so very distinctive. And it's, it's all, I think it's like 99% teenage girls just screaming with the shrill wall of sound. Anytime the Bay City Rollers said something and, you know, to their credit, they, they even speak in Japanese a little and try to throw in a few Kanichiwas and, you know, that kind of thing, but definitely a time capsule. It's their Budokan appearance, I guess. Budokan set the standard for Japanese applause. Oh, most definitely. And that would have become more, much more apparent, obviously, in 1979 with Cheap Tricks Live at Budokan. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. So we, we get to 1978, and what looked to be a sort of rebirth for the Rollers or a renaissance ended up being the beginning of the end. In the spring of 1978, 16 Magazine, which of course was the source for all news rollers and and pretty much everything, announced that Alan Longmuir would be returning to the lineup, which was very cool. Uh, the group would also be going back into the studio recording a new album, which was also great. But, and this is the biggie, the group would have its own Saturday morning TV show on NBC called uh, The Croft Superstar Hour. And, of course, the name kind of gives away the fact that this would be produced by none other than the Mad Puppeteers Sid and Marty Croft. They, of course, would produce Donnie and Marie, uh, H&R Puff and Stuff, Lidsville, Land of the Lost, and all these other cheesy 70s TV treasures, you know. Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. Yep, yep. And this show – now, this is a story – Sid and Marty Cross said originally, I think they were just probably being facetious. They wanted the Beatles. But supposedly there's a story going around that ABBA was originally offered the show. And they very wisely turned it down because, I mean, can you really see ABBA doing a Saturday morning TV show? With those accents and those cute little matching jumpsuits, I, I, I would watch. Yeah. They all would. Well, you know, it's funny you talk about the accents because one of the things, and this was published in 16 Magazine, was that the Rollers were supposedly given elocution lessons by a, I don't know, a speech therapist or I don't know what you call them out in Hollywood, but they wanted to make them a little more understandable and a little more palatable to American ears because they had done a show in the UK 
for the BBC called uh, Shangalang, which was named after one of their songs. But on that show, you know, they just kind of came out and did their thing and didn't make a big deal out of it. But this Croft uh, Superstar show, which was you know was was going to be epic. I mean, they had choreographed dance moves, explosions, you know, balloon drops. I mean, and of course, the Bay City Rollers would also engage in banter with some of the Croft characters like H.R. Uh, Puff and stuff and Mr. a character called Mr. Munchie. Uh, you want to talk about 70s drug references, Mark? Yeah, Mr. Munchie. <laughs> and this was, this was really the beginning of, the, like I said, the beginning of the end because Les McEwen just thought the show was a bad idea. I don't even think they were they were, even had a chance to like think about it. I think their manager just signed the deal on their behalf. And by, they, by this point, Les McEwen was starting to see uh, a future without the Bay City Rollers. And he only did the show because uh, they were contractually obligated to it. They would have gotten sued if you know they hadn't done it. And interestingly... You know, I guess he showed up late for tapings or sometimes he didn't show up at all and really gave everybody a headache. And, you know, the rollers are appearing in these funny, well, not really funny skits, but they were trying to be funny. You know, some of the, they had some like recurring skits called like Horror Hotel and, uh, you know, whatever. And the rollers would do like, of course, you, you know, Mark, you remember the 70s variety shows where, you know, they would they would do these skits where they would be silent movie type things, but this really funny kind of Benny Hill type music and just, they would do zany, crazy things. Well, they, they were trying to revive the success of the monkeys basically with a new audience. None of whom would remember the monkeys. They weren't old enough. So naturally it was all new to them. And a lot of this, of course, is also classic, you know, music hall vaudeville type stuff, tying the girl to the railroad tracks. And, you know, the guy with, the evil guy with the with the long black hat and the mustache, etc. That kind of stuff. Right. And you know, the other thing too is that you know, they like I said they would do these skits. That reminds me, by the way, you know, Sid Marty Croft had already had a show with kind of a rock band involved. Remember the Bugaloos? The the only one I remember by them was Captain Cool and the Kongs, which was probably like the year before, like seventy six, seventy seven. Boogaloo's, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't, I can't say that I really remember it. They were, well, let's put it this way. Striper was the second rock band to dress up as bees. Okay. No, I don't remember that. I'll have to look into that. But, you know, again, they were trying to do the show, like, maybe it was like, maybe it was kind of modeled after the monkeys, but unfortunately it, it didn't have the writing, the quality of writing and acting that the monkeys did. I think the monkeys were very good actors with the basic rollers. They were just kind of throwing them this cheesy dialogue, trying to make them sound, you know, hip and whatever, but it didn't work. And this, the scenes are starting to show and the, the band finished doing the TV show and they then went back to Japan for a series of shows that were uh, kind of infamous actually, because at one point, and you can see there's a couple of documentaries on YouTube. You can watch about this this part of it where they literally got into a fight on stage. Les McEwen at this point was getting ready to leave and he was trying to sh take all the spotlight for himself. And he would go into other members like areas of the stage. If he didn't feel he was getting enough of a spotlight. And I guess it broke down into a physical brawl and like backstage, they had to be separated. And that was pretty much the end of the line for the, for the classic group at that point. 
And things were just about to get worse, too. So this is the point where, you know, David Lee Roth leaves Van Halen, and now, you know, speculation is who's going to take his place, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, of course, the show premieres in September of 1978. Now, here's, you know, how heartbreaking this was for me. My local affiliate, my local NBC affiliate, Channel 4 in Boston, decided not to air the Croft Superstar Hour. They decided to air air Bowling for Tangerines instead or something like that. And I remember, and Mark, you probably remember this. Remember remember pre-cable when you had VHF and UHF and all those kind of things? Yeah, syndicated shows. I remember trying trying to tune in the Rhode Island NBC affiliate thinking I might be able to watch it there, but no dice. So the first two months it was on, I never saw it because I couldn't. Now, what happened was the show didn't do very well in the ratings. So they changed the name of it to the Bay City Roller Show, cut it literally in half to a half hour and, and changed the airtime. So I did get to see it for like two or three months with in that format, but I never got to see the, the Croft Superstar f- shows until, you know, like years later on some bootleg VHS tapes. I would have thought this would have been like the classic summer replacement show, you know, like the ones the ones that that air a new programming, you know, during the summertime as, as sort of like a break from all the reruns. That would have been a much more sensible decision, I think, rather than like making it a real primetime variety show. Well, what's interesting, too, and, and Clive Davis made a really good point in Behind the Music. They did a Behind the Music about 20 years ago on VH1. The Rollers at that point, they just come out. They also came out that same month in September of 78 with their studio album, Strangers in the Wind, which ended up being the last album by the classic lineup. And the sound that they had been moving towards in the, on the last, heavily influenced, of course, by Clive Davis's input and wanting to put a stamp on it, they were moving into a more middle of the road sound, more almost like adult contemporary. And Clive Davis said, if you pursue a preteen audience, you may get it, but you won't hold on to it very long. And it seemed kind of a contrast that they're doing this music that's a little more mature. You know, maybe their audience, they're trying to sort of grow their audience a bit. But yet they're doing a show that, you know, like Clive Davis said, it's aimed at preteens. This Saturday morning shows are aimed at little kids primarily. And, you know, you succeed, you know, and of course it didn't. And then the album didn't do very well. In fact, I'll never forget People Magazine came out with their year-end issue at the end of 1978 and said that it was one of the worst albums of the year. So not a good time for the Rollers. No, unfortunately, when you lose credibility with both audiences, you kind of have nowhere to go. Right. And the other thing, too, is that right around the time that all this was happening, 16 Magazine published the first reports that Les was kind of on thin ice. He might be leaving the group, and this played out for a while. In fact, he left the group. I think he left the group finally in like October of '78. But it didn't. But of course, because this was back then, and you didn't have the internet and instantaneous news, we didn't find out till January that he was finally gone. That he was, mm. you know, utterly gone. And the show had been canceled. The show aired its last episode in January of '79. They were, you know, that group, that version of the group was done. Although the group didn't stop didn't really stop but 1978 was really the end of an era because what you get after 1978 
you get uh, an offshoot of the Bay City Rollers. It's still called, they called it the Rollers, but they had a different singer. And they went more of a power pop, new wave kind of direction. Really good, actually. Very credible music. And I think, you know, if it, it had not been for the fact that they were saddled with the reputation of being a teen, a teen pop group, and the fact that they, the record company just wouldn't get behind them at all anymore. They kind of reviewed them as yesterday's news or by the title of one of their own songs, Yesterday's Heroes. So what you get is, you know, that version of the Rollers, then they break up and then there's reunion tours of Japan with some of the classic members. And and then by the 90s, you just get this situation where Les McEwen has his Bay City Rollers group and they're competing against Eric Lynn's Bay City Rollers, and then it, it splinters even further as time goes on. And there's never really been a full reunion of the the classic lineup, and, and there can't be because. Um, and we should probably I should probably mention this now too. July second of 2018, Alan Long, the original uh, one of the founding members of the band, died. He got sick while on vacation in. Um, it was one of the South, South American countries. I can't remember where. They airlifted him back to Scotland, but it was too late. And he'd had a he'd had a rough time of it. He'd had a series of strokes, and he had poor health. So he passed away. And then just this past year, Ian Mitchell, who replaced him, he also passed away. Well, I have it here that he died at the age of 62 after suffering from throat cancer, uh, yeah. September 1st. Okay, yep. Yeah, and that was a surprise too. You know, he he had come aboard, he'd come back for some of the Japanese tours and did some touring with them, and I think he might have done even some recording. He also, it's funny, like right around the time the Bay City Rollers were imploding, he came out with his own group called Rosetta Stone, which were essentially, if you look at them, the way they were marketed, and they were managed by the Rollers manager, uh, they were essentially marketed as like a uh, kind of like an Irish Bay City Rollers. They were getting write-ups in 16, and they did like one album, and they <laughs> they had even worse luck than the Rollers because their one U.S. album came out, and like six months later, the record company went belly up. So two years later, I bought their I finally bought that record in a Woolworths in the bargain bin for like you know two ninety nine. You remember the bargain bins, Mark? Yeah, I bought a bunch of records in there, including some of the Kiss solos. Yep, and another thing kind of hit the rollers like a like a sack of uh, bricks, and it all started when Les McEwen left. He just figured, okay, I'm gonna go get my share of the mega, mega millions we've made, and you know he got his lawyer and he said, well, it's not gonna be that simple. What apparently happened was when they started making big money. Of course, the UK has an enormous tax rate, like. 90% or something like that. So in order to sort of shelter their earnings, they set up with these financial geniuses, these like offshore tax havens and companies and to sort of like the, the whole thing was that they would shelter from taxes and it would, you know, accrue interest and these guys would be set for life and they should have been. But what happened was, is that these guys were just taking their money and running off with it. And it started, a legal battle that ran for you know 30 or 40 years off and on where they were trying to find out where the money went you know they would be handed documents all the time oh sign this you need to sign this i think one of them even said that one time before they went on stage somebody forced them to sign a financial document and said if you don't sign this you can't go on stage and of course you know when you've got you know screaming fans out there you can't leave them hanging so 
they would just sign these things not knowing what they were signing and then find out, well, you know all those millions are made? Bye, you know, to, to quote one of their hits, bye-bye, baby. Yeah. That used to happen to groups all the time. Shady managers, offshore, offshore um, what do they call them, shell companies, yep. tax shelters, sign over as the representative of this, and I'll be the superintendent of that, and you never see your money. No, they, they, they got screwed out of a lot of money. In fact, Alan Longmuir at one point went back to plumbing. He was, you know, he was just like literally like in his later years, he would, you know, take a, a like a, the train into town in the UK or Scotland or whatever. And, you know, he'd work all day fixing toilets or whatever and then come home at night. You know, Les McEwen kept singing. He would sometimes play with Les McEwen's Bay City Rollers group. And, you know, they would jam. But, you know, most of these guys spent the 80s and beyond just, you know, kind of struggling to make ends meet. You know, they, they these guys made millions and billions of dollars and had nothing to show for it except, you know, recriminations, lawsuits. And, you know, it's really it's shameful that the recording. Well, it's not the recording. I mean, I'm sure the recording industry screwed them as well, but that these people who were supposed to be, you know, taking care of them were only taking care of themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's sad. And it really kind of, it was a sad kind of coda to their story because, you know, they were, even though they, their success only lasted a few years, they sold something like 120 million cop records in that time. Though, you know, Les McEwen said, I should be set for life a million, uh, you know, many times over and I'm not. Yeah, it definitely matters that you get the right manager at the very beginning because they will make decisions that could haunt you for life. And it definitely did. You know, they there was an attempt at a sort of reunion a few years back. Uh, it consisted of uh, Les McEwen, the vocalist, Stuart Wood, and Alan Longmuir. But that didn't work out very well. By the end... At one point, Stuart Wood, Woody walked out on the tour, and then he came back to finish it. But after that, it was just basically him and Les kind of uh, spewing venom at each other, and just you know. And Eric Longmuir, the band's uh, guitar player, had nothing to do with it. He's he's just off in Scotland. He does he's quite active. He does a lot of music and does a lot of shows. Sometimes he tours with a group that he calls the Bay City Rollers. And in fact, at one point, it was I think it was 2006. I saw an ad for Ian Mitchell's Bay City Rollers. Now, Ian Mitchell is the other roller who passed away, you know, earlier in, in 2020 September. Now, he was not an original member. He was like a replacement guy who was in the group for like six months in you know in the in 76. But somehow, it turns out in the U.S., some promoter somehow got to trademark the Bay City Rollers name and he licensed it out to Ian Mitchell. So I don't know if he still has the trademark or not, but uh, just as recently as I think last year, Stuart Wood has his own group and he calls it the Bay, it's, it's called the official Bay City Rollers, supposedly. He toured with a bunch of young guys and they put on plaid outfits and played the hits. I didn't go see it. I could have, but I didn't because I was kind of like, well, it's not really the classic lineup it's just one guy calling it the rollers you know yeah especially not with the original singer you know that that always makes the difference for me 
and you, uh, you have to have yeah you have to have at least the original singer and at least like I prefer it to be the original singer and guitar player. I mean, your mileage may vary, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, and Les does tour with his group that he calls the Les McEwen's. It's funny because he calls his group, uh, I've heard it called Les McEwen's 70s Bay City Rollers, which is not true because that's not the 70s lineup, and Les McEwen's legendary Bay City Rollers. But they they haven't toured the U.S. in quite a while. I might, I mean, I might be inclined to go see something like that where it's at least the original singer, but... I just have a feeling like that the original or what's left of the original group, because uh, Derek Longmuir, the drummer, retired. He actually retired from the music industry in the like in '84 after the Rollers reunited for another tour of Japan. He just got tired of the business, and he's actually, uh, as far as I know, he's still a, a nurse in Scotland. He, you know, went back to school and doesn't. He kind of carved a life for himself outside of music. So, what would you say the ultimate moral of the story is here? Besides, you know, check every check every document you sign with a fine tooth comb and a microscope. Well, double you know, double check your manager and make sure, and maybe even double check the people who are representing you business wise. But you know, it's a, it's a typical story, Mark. You know this that they take advantage of kids who don't know anything you know about uh, businesses or finance and how it works. You know, these are all basically kids who went to high school and, you know, some of them may not have even graduated. They might have just, you know, gone out and played music. So, you know, double check, you know, check your manager, check your business people and don't sign anything because somebody tells you you have to or you won't be able to go on stage because I don't think they would have stopped the show, you know, looking back. But, you know, when you're young, you tend to like you tend to take your manager and their manager ruled with an iron fist. So anything he said went. So I don't think they were really inclined to question him. And he kind of was, he put a lot of pressure on them and it, it kind of broke up the group ultimately. Oh, well. So what would you say about the music that's been left behind? I still enjoy it. I think it's fun. I think it's just a throwback to a more innocent time. You know, is it cheesy to a certain extent? Sure, but you know, music we liked from some some of the so-called hip groups, or you know, avant-garde, or you know, groups that are more respected. Even some of that is cheesy. I think it's just good rock, pop, whatever you want to call it. It's emblematic of the music of the times, you know. And but on the other hand, they introduced plaid into the uh, fashion lexicon because. The story behind that is interesting was that some fan had done herself up and put plaid along the trims of her pants. And the group kind of saw that and like, hey, that's a good idea. And they said part of it, the reason it was a good idea was because it was cheap. They didn't have a lot of money back in the early days. They were struggling. You know, they were going around in broken down vans. So they could just get somebody like the manager's like mother or something, or they could do it themselves even, just, you know, get the – uh, plaid fabric and just you know put along the trims of their trousers and you know they they definitely like I said they definitely gave that to the sort of fashion of rock and roll I mean if you watch documentaries on the rollers there were girls who were wearing the same outfits you know standing in queues lining up to go to their shows or to get tickets or whatever and it's 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 funny uh, there's an interviewer he's who says to this girl who's probably like you know, 12 years old. Do you think you look ridiculous? She goes, no, it's just, it's just a gimmick. isn't it, 
you know? So it's I would just say the Bay City Rollers are fun pop rock. There's nothing ironic or detached about them. There's no guile. There's no, you know, it's just good fun. And it's, you know, you can read your 16 magazine and go back to the time when, you know, you you believed that your groups were wholesome, they all got along great, and that the world was just a wonderful place to live in. And on that note, I, th- I think that's pretty much where we can say goodbye to this one and goodbye to that fateful golden time. Yep. When bands all lived together in the same <laughs> house and rode together in the same car and were the best of friends. Yeah, well, like I said, if you believe 16 Magazine, that was the pink, the picture that was painted. And we bought it, and we loved it, and, you know, and like I said, you know, the group that, like I said, when they when they kind of spun off and took the Bay City Rollers out of the name for a couple of years and called it the Rollers, that in and of itself might be worth an episode because it was such a different sound and a different, and such a contrast to the, what's known as the Bay City Rollers sound, but, you know, maybe we'll look into that at some point as a, but I think we've, like you said, we've kind of, I think we've talked about the Bay City Rollers enough here, you know, unless you have something else to say, Mark. No, I think that's we've spent this S A T U R D A Y night quite pleasantly and wisely, and I think we've pretty much covered everything that needs to be known. Yeah, there's there's not a lot more to the story at this point, unless you want to just you know recount all the court cases they've had against each other over the years. <laughs> oh dear. Well, on that note. Uh, this we wrap up another episode of the Double K Super Show, our first of 2021, and uh, let's hope that this year, you know, things kind of get back to normal. We can all, uh, you know, breathe uh, safely again and not have to worry about contracting that damn virus. You're right about that. I'll be so glad to take the stupid mask off once and for all. Yeah, yeah, me too. But, you know, until then, you know, we, we just got to do what we got to do. Stay safe. And uh, if you're going to stay inside, listen to the Double K Super Show. I mean, you certainly could do much worse things with your time. Yeah, you know, your time ain't going to waste itself. So let's get on that, people. All right, then. This is the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam. Mark Kozrowski. And we'll see you next time. Take care, y'all. The opinions expressed on the Double K Super Show do not necessarily reflect that of anyone, really. The Double K Super Show is a Double K production. Copyright 2021 Double K Productions, all rights reserved.